You know, it's 2019, have you noticed? Have you figured it out yet when you're writing your checks? Have you stopped writing 2018 and started writing 2019? And, you know, I think we should really enjoy, take our time and enjoy and appreciate 2019. Uh, 2019 uh, is going to be sort of our last breath of calm and sanity before we have our next presidential election in 2020. So just brace yourself. I'm not sure that our country's ready to handle that, but uh, uh, brace yourself. Enjoy your relatively calm family gatherings in 2019 and your relatively nice Facebook feeds in 2019 because uh, next year it's going to get uh, a little bit interesting. Um, you, know, uh, there, you know, there are already candidates who have announced themselves, and they do it through a campaign announcement speech. And if you've ever had the opportunity to hear a candidate give a campaign announcement speech, essentially what they try to accomplish in that speech is three things. They try to say, this is who I am. This is what I care about, right? This is my platform. This is what I'm running on. This is the key issue for me. And the third thing that they really want people to understand is this is how I envision America. This is how I envision our country. This is who I am. This is what I care about. And this is my vision for our country. That's often what those speeches sound like. Well, we're continuing in our series in the Gospel of Luke, and this morning we are in Luke chapter 4, and Jesus, having just been baptized by John the Baptist, having just endured 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, that's what we looked at last week, he now returns to his hometown of Nazareth, and he goes into the synagogue, and he essentially gives his campaign announcement speech, if I can say it that way. He stands up and he gives an inaugural address, essentially, because Jesus came not to convert people to Christianity. Jesus came not to convince people to live a certain way. Jesus came to announce a kingdom and to inaugurate a kingdom. And so we know this because at the end of Luke chapter 4, he tells people, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And so Jesus says, one of the purposes for which I was sent to earth was to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And in this passage that we're going to look at together this morning, Jesus is basically saying, here's who I am, here's what I care about, and here's how I envision the kingdom. And for most of his message, or for really the entirety of his message until the very end, he's actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah. So let's read this together. We are in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. This should be on your handout. It also will be on the screens for you. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, it says that Jesus, this is right after he was tempted in the wilderness, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now, let's just pause for a second, and let me give you a little insight into what this environment would have looked like. The synagogue was the religious, social, and education nucleus of a Jewish community. So there was one temple, there was a temple in Jerusalem, but there were many synagogues that could be found throughout the Mediterranean world. And in the temples, or in the temple, they would gather and animals were sacrificed by priests on the altar for different forgiveness, forgiveness of different sins and, and different sorts of sacrifices. But in the synagogues, and the rabbis would often think of the synagogues as assembly halls, uh, they would function primarily as worship centers where the Torah was read and explained and expounded but secondarily as community centers, uh, guest houses, and sometimes even schools for children. Uh, 
In a typical Jewish synagogue, where this story takes place would have been a room, and there would have been benches along the outside walls of the interior of that room. And the men and the women would have sat on those benches, and the men would have been separated from the women. And the men would have been seated in a very specific order, according to their status and, and sort of um, who they were and their importance. And in, in the synagogue, there would have been a low platform, lower than our stage, a low platform. And on that platform, there would have been two things. There would have been a cupboard and, and also a podium. And the cupboard basically contained the Torah, and the podium was for when the Torah was read. And this um, stage, if you want to call it that, was the focal point of the room, right near the front and center of the synagogue. And we know this because actually archaeologists have excavated and discovered many of these synagogues, including this very synagogue in Nazareth. Archaeologists have excavated and found the synagogue where this story takes place. Okay, so envision this moment. Jesus walks to this platform. He stands front and center. He, he's there. They're seated around the room on their benches. And this is how the story continues. Verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord or the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a reference to the year of Jubilee. Verse 20, it says, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled, fulfilled in your hearing. This morning, we're going to learn three things about the kingdom of God. It's important that we understand the kingdom of God because many of you would say that Jesus is your king and you pledge allegiance to Jesus, and you love Jesus, and you serve Jesus. But what kind of kingdom is Jesus all about? What does his kingdom look like? And so three characteristics, and the first one is this. If you're taking notes, you can fill it in. The first characteristic of the kingdom is what we call the great reversal. It's the great reversal. Any of you remember back far enough to remember recess in elementary school when you'd run outside to play, and uh, they would pick teams, Anybody always picked first? Any all-star athletes in the room? You always were the, no one wants to admit. You all just said you're beautiful, so you might as well just own up and say you're all-star athletes too. Anybody pick last? You don't have to raise your hand. You look like first-round picks, but you know that, that feeling? And, and I was reading this um, blog by this uh, lady named Katie Baker, and she was, she, even though she's a grown woman, she's in her mid-20s, she was thinking back to her time as a kid, and she said uh, it's affected her still, those memories. And she said, even as a kid, I was deemed hopelessly unathletic by a jury of elementary schoolers when I was six years old, before I ever had a chance to learn how to kick or dribble or catch because I was the tiniest girl in my class. I'll never forget how it felt to be picked last by my peers during gym and recess, day after day, year after year. That whole playground, gym class, recess scene we would like to think that we leave that behind us. But the truth is, is that as we grow older and we enter into new environments and new friendship circles and workplaces and different, we realize people still choose people based on their strengths, what they think that they bring to the team. And I guess on one hand, it, it makes a lot of sense. And so they look for the strongest, the smartest, the quickest, those who have strength, power, intelligence, popularity, and ability. 
But did you notice that Jesus, in this moment, he's back in his hometown. People are wondering who, what, they've heard things about him. He grew up right there. They knew him as a child. They knew him as a teenager. They know Mary. They know, uh, they knew of Joseph. And they're wondering who is Jesus. Jesus has this opportunity to impress them with uh, who he came for. Instead, Jesus says, I came for the poor. And I came for the oppressed, the captives, the unimpressive average Joes and the overlooked nobodies. And we have to stop and ask ourselves this question. Who comes for those? What kind of God comes for those types of people? And the kingdom of God confronts you this morning with a remarkable reversal of values. And I just want to I just want to suggest to you that we are inundated with values, whether we realize it or not. Everything you watch, every commercial you see, every conversation you have, everywhere you go, this world is constantly coming against you with their set of values. This is what matters most. This is what's most important. This is how you know that you're worth the space you take up. And we have to constantly and consistently reorient our heart to the values of the kingdom of God. Otherwise, before we know it, our entire narrative, our entire lives are going to be shaped and informed by the values of this world. Can I, I listed 10 values of this world that the kingdom of God has the reverse value. Let me, let me list them for you real quick. This world says, be true to yourself. And God, Jesus said, deny yourself and follow me. This world says, embrace convenience and comfort. And Jesus said, take up your cross. This world says, follow your heart. And the Bible says, your heart's desperately wicked. You can't trust your own heart. No one in your entire life has lied to you more than yourself. Don't follow your heart. This world says, you don't answer to anyone. And the scriptures tell us that God is our righteous creator. This world will say, you own everything you have. You do whatever you want. Your body, it's yours. You do whatever you want with it. And the scriptures teach us that everything we have is on loan and that we were bought with a price, so we should glorify God with our bodies. This world says, define and create your own truth. In the, Bible, in the Bible, Jesus says, I am truth. This world says, look out for number one. Look out for yourself. Step on people to get to the top. And Jesus said, be a servant of all. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This world says, surround yourself with the movers and the shakers. Get around the important people and rub shoulders with all the right people. And every time you walk into a room, identify who you need to invest your time with strategically to advance yourself. And when we look at Jesus, who does he spend time with? Who does he eat with? Who does he gather with? Who did he call? The outcasts, the losers of society. This world says, be seen and be noticed. And John the Baptist said, I must decrease and he must increase. And this world says, get to the top of the ladder as fast as you can and by any means. And Jesus taught us that the first will be last and the last will be first. Okay? So do you see what I'm saying here? It's a complete reversal of values. And if we're not careful, we, we start living our lives religiously, but in the wrong kingdom. We're doing our best to serve God, but we don't have this right set of values informing our lives. And do you know what our society's highest values are right now, today? They're things like self-realization, self-expression, self-actualization, self-fulfillment. You tell somebody that they can't be true to who they think they are, it's, it's the worst thing you can say today to people. You tell people that life's not all about them, it's, 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 it's considered to be um, very myopic and very narrow and very unfair and very harsh. David Brooks, in his, um, he writes a column for the New York Times. In January 3rd of this year, he wrote this. 
He said, we live in a culture of selfism. It's a culture that puts tremendous emphasis on self, on self-care, and self-display. Now, self-care is okay. One, one piece of advice I got at one point in my life, which I never forgot, is this. Self-care isn't selfish. You got to take care of yourself. But this, this need for self-display, to be so, seen, to promote myself, to platform myself, and of course, we have all sorts of new tools through technology and social media to do so. We have to be careful that we don't start to live by those values. So if the world's values are self-expression and self-fulfillment and self-actualization and self-realization, what are the values of the kingdom of God? Self-denial self-forgetfulness, and self-sacrifice. Don't be confused about what it means to serve God. And don't get confused about what the kingdom of God is about. It's not about you finding new ways to express yourself. It's not about you becoming even the best version of yourself. It's not about you even finding personal fulfillment. Because if you serving God in his kingdom is all about you, then you're always going to end up disappointed. Disappointed with the lack of opportunities. People don't recognize my gifts and they're not giving me opportunities. Disappointed with the lack of notice, with the lack of appreciation, because when it's all about you, you need to be seen and you need to be celebrated and you need people to know what you're good at and know who you are. But the kingdom is, as Jesus said, it's about losing your life to gain life. You try to save your life, you'll lose it, Jesus said. But the one who's willing to lose their life for him will find true life. Jesus' kingdom is a total reversal of values. And we don't just hear it in his teaching here. Don't, don't you know that we see it in his birth and in his life and in his death? Think about it. I'll be quick here. But with his birth, Jesus was born in obscurity, scandalous circumstances. Mom and dad were a bunch of were nobodies. He was witnessed, his birth was witnessed by barn animals, and it was announced to peasant shepherds. Think about Jesus' life. He was never rich. He was not well-traveled. His closest friends were losers in society and spiritual weaklings. And then he dies without a penny to his name. And then think about his death. He's arrested on false accusations. It's a farce of a trial. They should never have had that trial in the middle of night. It was, he was a pawn in the hand of fearful political leaders who just kept sending him back and forth because nobody wanted the responsibility and the weight of it. And then he died between two criminals. He died a death so terrible and so violent that within a few hundred years, the Roman Empire outlawed it because they just said it's, it's too much. It's too much. Pastor Timothy Keller says it this way when he talks about the reversal of values. Listen to this. He says, Jesus wins our salvation through losing. He achieves power through weakness, and he comes to wealth via giving it all away. And those who receive his salvation or those who live in his kingdom, they are not the strong, and they are not the accomplished, but they are those who are willing to admit that they are weak and that they are lost. It's a reversal of values. And in his teaching, Jesus says every single thing this world values and builds their life on and celebrates and platforms, every single thing this world values, you should be very wary of. You don't have to be antagonistic against it. You don't have to call everybody out on it, but you personally, you should be wary of it. You should pay very close attention to your own heart because it's so easy for the wrong sort of values to leak into your faith, to leak into your relationships, to leak into your ministry, and to leak into your work. And so what do we do? Let me, let me give you a practical thought before we move to the second point this morning. I, I was listening to um, an interview last week of a guy named Justin Early. He's a lawyer in Richmond, Virginia. He's a former missionary, and he has a new book coming out, I think either this month or next month, called The Common Rule. 
And if you want to learn more about him, you can go to his website. It's thecommonrule.org. And on this web, in this interview, he basically said, pay very close attention to your unexamined habits. What are the things you do without thinking about it? What's the first thing most people do nowadays when they wake up? What's the first thing they get? What's the first thing they grab? What's the first thing they look at? Their phone, right? And so he, he talked about that. And, and, and in this interview, he, he unpacked what is the story that we're believing to be true when the first thing we do, and I'm guilty of this, by the way, is roll over in bed, grab our phone, see if, do we get any text messages? Do we have any emails we need to reply to? Did anybody comment on our Facebook post? Like, and and he, he unpacks it. I'm not going to do it now. If you want the link, I can send you the link to the podcast. It was, it was so really convicting for me, if I'm being honest. So if I was convicted, you might as well just join in my misery. Um, <laughs> but he said, you watch your habits because they, inform, they are informed by and they inform the story that you're living out. And he talked about habits of resistance and habits of embrace. And I love this language because he said, we need to have some habits of resistance, things we push away from ourselves. But we also need to have some habits of embrace, things that we pull into our life intentionally. And he, he suggested four daily habits and four weekly habits. I want to show you this graphic. This is off his website, thecommonrule.org. And he talks about this idea that the daily habits, now these are his, and this is not to be a legalistic burden on you. I'm not doing all of these, but uh, maybe this, some of these will be helpful for you. Every day he tries to do four things. He tries to uh, kneel in prayer. Now, why? Just because for him, he thinks the change in position is meaningful for him. You know, it's one thing to walk all day and pray, which is good. But he says, like, I actually make, I, I cause myself, I think he does it twice a day, to stop and kneel and pray. And for him, it's a reminder positionally of how dependent he is upon God. Another thing he does every day is he tries to share one meal with other people. Uh, another thing is every night he spends, uh, he t- turns his phone off for one hour. And he, uh, and then I love this last one, and we started doing this one in our home. It's called Scripture Before Phone. And we talked with our girls about this, and Aaron and I have embraced this too. And we've made this decision that in the morning, before we check our phones, we're going to read Scripture. And it's not about me making myself more righteous before God, of course, or earning his love. It's about me shaping my heart, shaping my values. And by the way, like I told Aaron, I need to have an actual tangible Bible next to my bed because a lot of times I read the Bible on my phone and it's really useful and many of you do also. But what happens when you go to grab your phone even with the intent to read, read the scripture first? You'll see all these notifications, right? And then you'll get distracted. Next thing you know, you haven't. So this is one thing we're trying to do, scripture. And then weekly, he talks about Sabbath. He talks about one hour of meaningful friend conversation with a friend, fasting, and then curating his media, paying attention to what he's watching. I wanna share with you a few other things I'm trying to do in 2019. And I'm not sharing them with you to brag on myself. In fact, you may be embarrassed that I've not been doing these things previously. Um, but I'm sharing them with you because I want to encourage you to take a next step this morning and think about what's a little shift in your rhythm, in your habit that might help you embrace the values of the kingdom of God more than the values of the kingdom of this world. So here's one thing I've already done. I shut off on my phone, and this is hard for me, I shut off all my notifications on social media. So nothing comes to my home screen anymore. I used to light up every time somebody posted something that I knew or commented on something. Some of you, I know you're not on social media, this isn't relevant to you, but many of you are. And so now on the home screen of my phone, I never know what's, what's waiting for me in Facebook or on Twitter, on Instagram, because the way I'm wired is that as soon as a notification pops up on my screen, I gotta go look at it. I gotta go see what somebody said. I gotta go see what it is. So for me, I've turned off my notifications. Another thing I'm, uh, I'm doing is I'm thinking about my interactions on social media. 
I'm trying to commit myself to this. You don't have to right every wrong. You don't have to correct every person, whether it's their spelling, their grammar, or their political view, or their religious view. Why carry that weight? That's a heavy weight, right? That's exhausting. And so I'm sort of committing myself to saying, if I'm going to interact with something on social media, I'm always going to build up. I'm going to just, it's going to be life. It's going to be truth. If I feel like somebody's out of order, maybe I'll have a face-to-face conversation with that person. But you've learned by now how productive is social media back and forth. Not very, right? So that's one thing I'm trying to do. And then we're trying to, Aaron and I are paying attention to our media intake. And we've already gone through and we've, uh, we, we were recording different shows and we've already gone through and we've eliminated like four shows that we used to record and we're like, we don't need to watch. We, let's just stop recording it. Let's just stop watching. So I'm not saying this to you saying this is what you got to do. But I'm saying this is what I'm having to do at this season of my life to make sure that the values of my life are in line with the values of the kingdom of God. And so ask yourself, what is something that you might do this year? Okay, the second thing that we see in this passage is it's not just a great reversal of values, but it's the glorious renewal, okay? If you're taking notes, it's the glorious renewal. Jesus says in verse 18 that the blind will see. Now, in order for a blind person's eyes to be opened, it takes more than just a reversal of values, right? It takes more than just a change of perspective. It takes something remarkable. It takes something supernatural for the eyes of a blind person to be opened. And when Jesus quotes from Isaiah and talks about the eyes of the blind and the blind being able to see, what he's promising is this, a miraculous renewal and recovery of every single thing that's been lost. This is the kingdom of God. This is what's coming. It's, it's here, but it's not here, right? It's already, but it's not yet. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but it's not fully realized. That's the tension that we live in right now as the people of God. And so he's saying here that all things that have been lost are going to be renewed. Everything that's been getting old is going to be made new. All the sad things are going to become untrue. And someday in the kingdom, we'll experience the fullness of that. But right now, we just get glimpses of it. And what was lost? And there's four things that were lost in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve choose to rebel against God and choose that they want, decide they want to be their own God. Four things that are lost. Number one, they lost a relationship with God. They used to walk with God, talk with God, face to face with God. As soon as they sinned, God is a holy God. He could not be in that sort of relationship with them. And so that was a loss of his relationship with God. The second thing they lost was not just relationship with God, but even a healthy relationship with themselves. It's very telling that only four of us raised our hands when Pastor Unhe said, how many of you think you're beautiful? It's really telling. I mean, and I'm with you. I didn't raise my hand. I mean, I got a mirror, so I know, but I, 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 didn't, I didn't raise my hand. Why? Is as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, the very first thing the Bible says is that they realized what? That they were naked and they were ashamed. Well, what does that mean? They had been naked all along. Previously, they had been so fulfilled and satisfied in their relationship with God that they, they weren't self-aware in a hurtful, damaging way. But from that moment forward, humankind has a history of seeing ourselves through a filter and really carrying a lot of shame and guilt about who we are. Can you imagine, can you imagine what you'll be like without any of that someday? Can you imagine yourself in the new kingdom with no insecurities, no shame, no guilt, That's what's coming. That's the glorious renewal. The third thing here that Jesus says is we didn't just lose relationship with God and relationship with ourselves. We lost relationship with others. What did Adam and Eve do immediately? They turned on each other, right? They blamed each other. 
And God wants us to be in relationship with each other because God is interested in forming a people to be his people. This is his heart. So don't believe the lie. Sometimes Christians believe the lie. I can do this on my own. You can't do it on your own. You simply can't. Jesus didn't do it on his own. You know, Jesus was in a small group. Jesus had friends. Jesus needed friends. And Adam, before there was sin in the world, Adam was lonely. Sometimes we think loneliness is an effect of sin in the fall. It's not. Even in perfection, even in paradise, Adam desired relationship for someone else. Why? Because we've been created in the image of triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who has existed eternally in relationship with itself. And since we've been created in that very image, you and I are wired for relationship. We need that. So don't believe the lie that you can do this on your own. You can't. And also, be careful not to believe the lie that biblical community the people that you do life with can be a group of hand-selected, like-minded people. There's a movement in Christianity today where people say, I don't need the church. I got my own group of people, and it's good enough for me. And they're hand-selecting the people that they're doing life with. And that, this is the way I feel about it. You might have a club, but you don't have a church. It's not a church. D.A. Carson, in his book, Love in Hard Places, says that the church is a band of natural enemies who love each other for Jesus' sake and no other reason. A band of natural enemies who learn or are learning to love each other for Jesus' sake. And if we've just gathered people around us who are like us and think like us and we think that's the community, you're not part of a church until you're sitting in a church and you're part of a family with people that you otherwise wouldn't gather with. And that there's something holding you in common with them that's stronger than your political views, your personal views, right? There's something stronger than all of that. And it's our love for Jesus and his mission. And the last thing that we lost that's going to be renewed in the kingdom of God is this. It's our relationship with creation. You know, when, when Adam was created, he was created really and given one key task. Work the garden. Tend the garden. Last year, I think my favorite sermon last year that I preached was um, a sermon on the topic of work. We did a series called Before the Fall. And if you, if you weren't here yet, or if you missed it, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. It was my favorite from 2018. And it was all about Genesis 1 and 2, and what does it mean to work in a way that bears God's image and brings glory to him? But as image bearers of a working God, because God reveals himself in Genesis 1 as a God who's at work, we're supposed to work in creation, we're supposed to work with creation, we're supposed to work for the good of creation. You and I were created to do meaningful, beneficial work. We were created to be culture makers. Now, why are you and I created to be culture makers, to, to sort of uh, care for this world and to care for creation and to develop it? Why? Because God's renewing all things. He's making all things new. And someday we'll experience the newness and the fullness in his kingdom fully realized. We need this promise, don't we? Anyone feel like you need this promise this morning of renewal? Maybe you feel it in your body. You need this promise. Maybe you feel it in your heart. You feel it in your soul. You know, I preached, I, I preached this text a couple years ago. I don't know if any of you remember this. And I used this outline a couple years ago. And the reason why I remember it so well is because it was February 19th, 2017. And it was the morning of my father's funeral. And this is the text, and this is the outline, and it was a bit of a blurry moment and morning for all of us, so I don't expect you to remember it. But when I was thinking about this idea of this glorious renewal, I thought, this, this promise of the glorious renewal, this is what gets us through seasons like that, right? It's what gets us through. This promise that someday all things are going to be made right. 
and all things are going to be made new. And God has promised that he's going to bring about a glorious renewal. And although we don't experience it fully here and now, we do get glimpses of it, don't we? Every miracle, and we believe that God heals people, every healing, every wonderful moment in his presence, you know what it is? It's the, this is what I think it is. It's the kingdom of God kind of breaking in on earth. There's a very popular show on Netflix called Stranger Things. And in Stranger Things, there's two worlds that occupy the same space at the same time. There's the normal world, and there's the upside-down world. And the upside-down world is a dark world with dark beings. And every now and then, the upside-down world breaks in on the normal world. And people in the normal world can actually see the darkness kind of breaking in. And of course, it's terrifying, and it's scaring. it scares them. And in a real way, the kingdom of God is, of course, not the upside-down world. The kingdom of God is the right-side-up world. And every now and then, it breaks in. And when it breaks in, it fills our hearts with hope. It gives us promise. So how many of you at some point in your life, you have experienced some touch of God that has uh, ministered to your body physically? You feel like at some point in your life, you've been physically healed of something. So many people in this room right now are saying, I have, you know what that was? That was the kingdom of God breaking in now for you. We won't experience it all now, but we get glimpses of it. It's like God gives us these glimpses of it. It's the glorious renewal. And then lastly this morning, The kingdom of God is the great reversal, it's the glorious renewal, and it's the good ruler, the good ruler. After Jesus quotes him Isaiah, he rolls up the scroll, he hands it back to the attendant, he sits down, everybody's looking at him. And it says in verse 20, it says, all the eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. They're all staring at him. Now, why are they staring at him as he sits down? In in that culture, and you've heard me say this before probably, they would read scripture standing up, but they would teach sitting down. And so after Jesus read the scripture standing up and he sat down, they all were staring at him intently because they were expecting the sermon, the explanation, the exposition. What does this text actually teach us? And what he said, they never would have expected because Jesus says this. He says, this text that I just quoted from the prophet Isaiah hundreds and hundreds of years ago today, boy, boy you're in luck. It's a good day to be at the synagogue because today this promise is being fulfilled. And here's essentially what Jesus is saying. This, the Torah, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the law, the prophets, that was all about me. It was all pointing to me. And by the way, we know this because this this word that Jesus uses here when he says that the scripture that you've heard has been fulfilled this very day, that Greek word scripture is graphe, and it's only used two times in the Gospel of Luke. It's used here, and then it's used in Luke 24. And Luke 24 is after Jesus has died, resurrected, and he's walking with two disciples. And it says that he opened up the scriptures to teach them how all of Moses and the prophets was about him. So there's only two times in the entire gospel that this word is used. And every time it's, each time it's used, it's because Jesus is helping the Jewish people know everything that you've built your hopes and your trust in is fulfilled and culminates in my life, in my work, and in who I am. And even the way Luke writes this story points to the truth that when Jesus said the spirit of the Lord or the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, that he was talking about himself. Let me explain. Luke uses this interesting story structure. It's called a chiastic structure. Chiastic. And chiastic is structures, it's a literary device. And this is essentially what it is. It's a literary device where it tells the story and the story is like steps up, to on one side, and then the climactic moment, and then steps down on the other side. 
And the opposing steps correspond to each other. So let me explain. At the beginning of the story, it says that he was in the synagogue. At the end of the story, it says they were in the synagogue. And then it says he stood up to read. But the end of the story says he sat down. It says the scroll was handed back to him. The scroll he handed back. He, the scroll was unrolled. He rolled up the scroll. And so it's like a stairway in this story. And right at the top of the stairway in this chiastic literary device is Jesus standing and saying, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. So he's not just quoting scripture. He's fulfilling the prophecy right in their presence. The scripture you have heard has been fulfilled today. And here's what he's saying. The great reversal that you've all heard about, it's beginning. I'm here. The great renewal that you're all hoping in, it's coming. I've started it. I've inaugurated the kingdom. This is my inaugural address. I'm here to tell you who I am, what I care about, and what the kingdom is like. Now, how is all of that possible? And simply because the good ruler, the good ruler is here, seated before you. See, every kingdom, every kingdom needs a king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, The people of Israel say, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. And the prophet Samuel warns them, yeah, but if we send you a king, he's going to take everything from you. Everything. But Jesus is the king who left his throne to give everything back. Not just to, not to come and take everything and to steal from us and rob from us, but to give everything back. Jesus, the good ruler. And Jesus, you know, in this story, it's interesting. Jesus sits down after announcing his purpose for coming. But three years later, after Jesus fulfills his purpose for coming, he sits down again. After he dies, after he's buried, after he's resurrected, he ascends to the right-hand side of the Father where he takes a seat. And he sits down because he's completed his work. He's accomplished what he came to do. And here's what it means for you and me this morning as we finish. Jesus is seated at the right-hand side of the Father where he lives forever. You know what he's doing? He's praying for you. And he's praying for me. And can you imagine the strength it would give your heart if you could hear just for one minute into heaven right now? Can you imagine what sort of strength it would give to your spiritual backbone if you could hear Jesus turn to the Father and say, you know my son, you know my daughter. And what is he praying for us? He's praying for us that we would live out the reversal of values, that we wouldn't accept the values of this world. He's praying for us that we would experience his glorious renewal. And he's praying for us that we would submit ourselves to his good rule. Now, how do we join in that prayer? Very simply, we pray as Jesus taught us, your will be done and your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Here's another way to pray that prayer. God, reverse my values. God, renew me. Renew my hope. Renew my heart. Renew broken relationships. Renew broken bodies. And then God, rule and reign over my life with your goodness and with your truth. Let's bow our heads in prayer.